kid, Sherry, I used to dress up like Robin. Not Batman, but Robin. <laughs> did you ever, did you ever watch Batman? The old Adam West version? Um, a little bit at our babysitter's Mrs. Sims. We didn't call them nannies and we went to their houses, so. I was a we babysitter. didn't call them nannies and we went to their houses. <laughs> so she was a babysitter, Mrs. Sims, so we watched the Mickey Mouse Club and then the boys got to choose and the girls got to choose the show. So like, when the boys chose it was Batman, mm-hmm. didn't mean to be sexist there, but I had a feeling that's where you were going. What did the yeah. girls choose? I don't remember. Little House on the Prairie? No, because it was All like after the girls school. I grew up with chose Little well, House on the Prairie that every an, day. That was like kind of an evening or, you know, after school when I was home being a latchkey kid. Kind of haunted by Little House on the Prairie. What? Well, my sister and three girls, this is the family we hung did around the most. Did they make you be the brother? No, we didn't like play it out. We just watched it, and I had uh-huh. to watch so much Little House on the Prairie. Uh-huh. Anyway, I was Robin. I'm not sure why. I think you know. I think I had this, you know, soft spot for the sidekick kind of thing going on, and or the I pressures like of being Batman were just way too much. That could be it. Or I you were a boy. The stress of being Batman. You were a boy. Well, and even then, the I just didn't like the way Adam West talked like i know he's famous and revered for his depiction of batman but something about him i don't even remember the the name of the actor that played robin but i had i had these tights that i wore and then i wore rubber training pants (laughs) like you would wear over a diaper that you know when when it might leak or what or did you wear those over underwear that might leak like when you were learning how to potty train yeah i mean and if your mom used cloth Diapers for your sister, oh, okay. I'm sure. But did your mom buy you tights? I don't think or my mom these, used cloth diapers. Or were these, or maybe it was like underwear training. Yeah, just rubber yeah. pants in case you leak. But I, you know, I was you well go, beyond the age of leaking. I just, the rubber just pants went with the outfit. Go scour your sister's old discards of, because she is younger than you, but. I don't know. I don't. I don't know how I came up with the outfit, but I do remember it. I've seen pictures of it. Oh, you have? Yeah. And I had a cape. Yeah. And then I wore some kind of goggles, because if you remember, Robin always had... had, a mask. Yeah, but it was like a Lone Ranger mask. It was just over his eyes. Yeah. Like, that's hiding anything. Yeah. But the the tights that I wore, I I do remember specifically that I wore them out, like in the knees, and the knees came through. And then, of course, my mom, you know, she's smart, so she's like, just (laughs) turn them around and wore them backwards. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a long time. I had... But of course, then I was I was very self conscious because I had holes in the backs of my knees <laughs> as I was trying to fight crime with no with no Batman either. I mean, it was just me, Robin. Like, talk about a directionless, you know, a boat without a rudder, just running around the neighborhood, and um, no 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 bad guys were afraid of Robin. Well, yeah, I don't know. Robin has his own little like cult following with Teen Titans. Teen Titans Go. Really. He's like the leader of the pack. He well, comes I, up with some pretty crazy ideas. Our youngest, who's 10, watched him like a few years ago when he was into watching cartoons on TV. Well, so. then my timing was just bad. I missed, I missed, missed my era. Because I remember specifically, like, even the dogs in the neighborhood weren't afraid of me. They would chase me. And I, well, what kind of a superhero can't keep a wearing rubber pants. You know, 14-pound schnauzer at bay? But I couldn't. It was pretty, 
pretty unheroic. But so I only <laughs> tell that story because today we're going to talk about being a hero. We're going to talk about being your own hero. Don't worry about being Batman. Be Robin. Be your own hero. Yeah. And we'll get into what that means a little more in a little bit. I want to talk. start with a pretty common theme among the people that you and I work with that have that are the loved ones of alcoholics most if not all of them suffer you know and I, really if i think about it i think most humans if not all humans i guess not all but most of us suffer from some level of low self-esteem insecurity you know we talk a lot about the battle between our instincts and our insecurities and often we let the insecurities win. And a common phrase to describe this nowadays that is just kind of out there in the in the internet world and certainly in the self-help world is negative self-talk. We don't feel good about ourselves. We tell ourselves that we're not worthy. We feel those insecurities and it's just kind of a vicious cycle. And one of the things... You know, I kind of I wrote down three things really that are very common. And as we've learned on previous episodes of the Intoxicated Podcast, I can only remember two things at a time. Oh, so I did write these three things down because I was exceeding my limit. Yeah. But when we talk about low self-esteem, w- one of the ways that that plays out in real life for people is they say yes to just about anything that they're asked about. You know, they they become people pleasers. If I just say yes, then uh, I will be seen as as good in the eyes of others. And so I, I'm wondering, Sherry, did did you experience that? Did you do a lot of saying yes to to please others? If if you had trouble with your own self esteem, you had trouble with self love. Did you say yes so that other, you know, so that maybe growing up, so your mom or other adults around you would be happy with you and you were just trying to get some of that feel good from saying yes to please others. I'm sure I did nothing like it doesn't stick out like it's this gargantuan amount and now I say no to everybody. So it's not this like great divide. Yeah. I'm sure that I did. You know, I'm sure there were lots of times where I said yes to make it look like we had it all together, you know, and that I had plenty of time and I was emotionally invested in whatever they were doing or like yes to you know things earlier on that I maybe would have felt uncomfortable with but I went ahead along with the group because I didn't want to I didn't want to like you know separate from the group of friends and just went along it's funny sure yeah in our group shout sobriety where we work with uh Alcoholics and early sobriety. I did a little survey recently on their early experiences with drinking, and the resounding answer or, or cause of the early drinking. You know, a lot of people think that alcoholism comes because we're trying to cover up childhood trauma or some other kind of trauma. And while that's true, it's not usually the cause of the start of the drinking. You know, we, we might find that it makes the pain go away later on after we've done some drinking. Mm-hmm. And, oh, wow, okay, this this is what I'm going to use to medicate and to fix all that ails me. But the cause for the start of drinking, at least within the people that we've polled, is, was like 95% of them said it was 
peer pressure to fit in. You know, I'm going, I want to be invited to this party. And if I get to the party and I don't drink, then I'm never going to get invited to another party. Yeah. It's as, as kind of simple and basic as we all know, we all know it to be. Yeah. I can relate to that story for sure. Yeah. And I, I think that comes from, I think it comes from a low self-esteem, but I don't think low self-esteem is necessarily unnatural or uncommon. I mean, when you're a kid and you're finding your way and let's be honest, kids are vicious to each other, largely because if they stay on offense, they hope they never have to be on defense. So if I'm if I'm attacking others or or pointing out the flaws in others, then nobody will notice the flaws in me, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So the low self-esteem, I think, is totally normal. And then the saying yes to whatever the cool kids are doing uh, is just, again, to try to keep people from noticing your flaws and picking on you and pointing things out. So, yeah, the, the, the saying yes to please others, whether that's in the form of peer pressure or your parents, that you, you want to win their love, even though their love should be unconditional, it's all too commonly that, that desire is there to say yes to, to please. But there's another reason, uh, number two on my list of three, that, you know, in, in our, I don't know, I guess I would kind of call it research, but as we talk to more and more and more and more people and we find common threads, another common reason that people say yes when they don't really want to is is just to get what they want. Like people learn that, um, you know, if it, it's almost like a negotiation. If, if I give you this, then you'll give me that. Mm. Was that something that you experienced, you know, growing oh. up or even oh. in our relationship? I definitely can see it more in our relationship because as I get older, like memories fade and they don't stick as well. But I can definitely see where there were times that I said yes, maybe even if it was just as simple as, you know, then I was left in peace for the rest of the night or day where I said yes. Or thinking, well, if I say yes to all of these things, then surely when I like give my opinion about something I want to do, then he can't say no because I've given Matt all of these yeses and go-aheads and so so yeah so it's kind of like a negotiation in that sense yeah and you know when it comes to our relationship we've talked about this in the past and I know it's uncomfortable but to be specific a lot of times that yes that you were giving me so that I'd leave you alone was related to sex right yeah that was a that was a lot of times you know, and then there were other things. Like sometimes I would just agree with you if you were talking about and you had a very opinionated, you know, explosive tirade about some political thing or, you know, I just knew. I'd be like, okay, yeah, oh. I agree with you. So I'm drinking yeah. and watching the news and getting more yeah, and more worked just, up. Yeah, so there were lots of like, just shut up. Yes, that's totally it, you know. So I think that I wasn't always being truthful with myself. And being truthful with you, but it was because I just needed to stop that conversation. You know, one that I remember specifically, so we grew up in southern Indiana, just south of Indianapolis, and and the Indianapolis 500 has been a big part of my life, and since we've been married, it's been a big, sometimes reluctant part of your, your life. But you're a trooper, you enjoy it now, when it's not 110 degrees or raining, mm-hmm. but... 
anyway, I was watching an indie race one day, and one of the well, I, it was actually the week after a driver had died, and I had watched that race too, the one where the driver died, and I was drinking. And I was getting really emotional and sad for the driver and sad for his family. You know, just the kind of blubbery, slobbery that anyone who's listening to this podcast, either as the drinker or as the the person who loves a drinker, can totally relate to. And they were selling t-shirts for like, they weren't cheap. I don't know. They were like 30 bucks a piece yeah, or something. Yeah, that was a lot of money that left our 30 buck t-shirts for six people and the idea was that not the idea that what they did was they used the proceeds from the t-shirts to help the family of the driver who died so it was for a very good cause and you know a just sappy blubbery i decided that it this is the least i can do this is the least i can do to support this driver that i didn't even root for i didn't i didn't know him it wasn't even one one of your teams that you liked well he was actually that he was oh Um, he was just so young i didn't notice him but so I bought six T-shirts for and one for everyone in the two, family. Two, I think, say the word "ass" on them because that was his nickname was "badass," and yeah. So we had to make sure that the right people got the right T-shirts that didn't say "ass." Yeah, because the kids were young at the time, so we didn't want the kids to have "ass" T-shirts. Yeah, I should have just put a piece of tape over the "bad" and just left yours that said "ass" <laughs> <laughs> when you wore your. And change the his last name was Wilson. Change that to Salus. Ass Salus. <laughs> just. Asmat. 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 That would have been a great. We can still do it. I've still got that shirt. I know. I still have mine. I, yeah. Well, they were high quality because we paid 30 bucks for yeah, them. Yeah, they were nice. But. But so was... the point is, I remember you were in the room and you didn't fight me super hard on that. And I think of that as an example of a time when you were probably like, this is ridiculous. This is a huge waste of money that, you know, we can't afford this. This is stupid. But. If I don't say yes, he's just going to, he, you know, I, I would have turned it on you and told you you were uncaring and unfeeling and heartless. And mm-hmm. these, you know, this would have been a situation where I would have started talking about his kids because I know how, what a mama bear you are and how defend you defend our kids. And don't you care about, don't you care about Justin Wilson's kids, Sherry? I mean, that, that sounds like something that would have come out of my mouth if I had been coherent enough to even, you know, kind of process that thought and come up with something like that. But do you, I remember looking back, I wasn't so drunk that I blacked out. I remember the situation. I, I can think back and look on it and, and, you know, in shame at how blubbery I was about the whole thing. But I don't remember you putting up a ton of resistance as I spent $180 on t-shirts. Yeah, and for, I thought, ooh, what would have happened if I just decided to buy $180 worth of something? Oh, I would have gone through the yeah, roof. Yeah, like... I mean, through the roof. <laughs> the other day, God, I embarrassed myself so much. The other day, you came home with a new bucket, you know, like a household bucket you'd have. bucket, because you broke bucket. mine with the turkey. Well, we had the turkey thawing in ours, and I picked it up, and the handle broke. But it's 20 But it still old. holds water. But you can't so, carry it around. So I saw you come in the kitchen with a new bucket, and I'm that like... That was what's by the way i looked at the receipt and i said what's wrong with our bucket and you said the handle's broken and i said but it still holds water and i was serious and you were serious 
Now, oh. in my own defense, <laughs> I did back down pretty fast. And, and you I, did, and, and you realized, realized that ridiculous that was, was ridiculous. Because, I mean, that would have been like two gallons of milk, you know. Like, it was, but I was just like, what? But I remember that. Like, I decided that so when, I you were buying those, when you were buying those t-shirts, I thought, I hope when he goes to balance the credit card statement that he sees what a complete waste of money this is. And, like, two of our kids were appalled by wearing t-shirts like that and you made us all wear them that next year at the race and then there was a family i don't know if you remember there was a family in front of us yeah that it's it wasn't they were related to the wilsons uh, were they i don't know because but they were so like excited that we were wearing the t-shirt and you were so smug Hmm. you just i remember you kind of like were like see it really was a good thing you know you're like kind of like it really was a good thing and i was like i understand that it was for a good cause and also like there was you know things came out of his death new safety features and so but i just remember thinking oh my god a hundred and eighty safety features didn't have to come out of our wallet hundred and eighty dollars in t-shirts yeah that was a lot and you're right i would have been livid i would have been livid had you done that i mean i thought you were on that road the other day when you came home with the new bucket i expected you to Whip out the Cartier bracelets that you had bought along with the bucket. Yeah, since like, you, if you bought the bu- this new bucket, Sherry, what else are you capable new, of? I remember you're like, well, do you even need the handle on the bucket? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's so much easier to carry with the mop in it from up from the basement. Oh goodness sakes! So now I'm just gonna give it to one of the kids and make them wrap it up, and I haven't used it. The tag's still on the bucket. It'll be a Christmas. It'll be a Christmas for you. gift. At least I can feel good about that. Well, yes. So the whole point of this, these couple of stories, I guess, is that, you know, you you had learned that, that just saying yes sometimes was the easier way out. And I know this is a little bit painful, but I think it's really important. Let's go back to kind of high school age range. This is an area where you and many women, I'm not calling you out, we've had lots of discussions around this, Sherry, learn that, you know, sexual acts will get you what you want. If you, you know, want certainly affection, right? If you want affection from a boy, you've got to be willing to perform to a certain degree. And if you want you know, and once you learn that lesson, then it, it, it gets a little bit more, I don't know what the word is, manipulative or that you learn if you want to go to the concert, you're going to have to put out. And if you, if you want to ride and you're stuck in the woods, you're going to have to at a party, agree to something. You wouldn't just be stuck in the woods, but yeah, but you know, (coughs) I don't, I'm not, gonna like pin you in the corner and make you talk details here but I think this is important because this is the the stage in a person's development where they often learn this relationship let's face it sex ed in the United States is terrible the way we the way we teach boys and girls about what sex is all about because the pleasure factor for boys is it's there immediately. They don't have to work for it. There is just immediately satis- satisfaction from sexual acts for girls. You know, it's got to be worked harder for. Most girls, their first sexual experience is like, 
what was that? What just happened to me? There was nothing pleasurable about that. And so girls learn that they can use this tool that brings great pleasure to boys to their advantage because the advantage for girls isn't necessarily pleasure until they are with a partner who knows what they're doing. And often for many, 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 many women, that takes a long time to find someone that knows what they're doing. Does all of that make sense to you? I, I know yeah. you're uncomfortable maybe I, getting mad at me I, over there for talking I, about well, this. Well, I am, but it's just like, you know, I think that it's not so much like all that you were saying too. I think that it's just that peer pressure that by a certain age, you should have already had sex, at least like in the time frame that you and I grew up and where we grew up, okay. I feel like too. So I feel like it was that... And it wasn't like we set out to be manipulative. It just, you're like, oh, yeah, well, if I don't put out, then, you know, the, you know, the head of the football team, I don't even know, the captain of the football team isn't going to like me, and I'm not going to get to go hang out with all the cool people. So I think that, you know, you use sex to, to get to a place where you are, and it sounds really stupid, but like, I guess, respected or... You know, it's not like just because you had sex with the captain of the football team and he's hosting a party that you're going to go and have sex with everybody. It's just you're like, oh, well, they're cool. But I also had some guy friends that I know were really, they were not, they did not have sex by, say, 16 or something. And so they were kind of even made fun of. Like it was kind of. Ostracized, kind of. Yeah. Like kind of, you know, one of them we tried to set up like. Yeah. With somebody we knew that would at a party because we were like, we didn't want him to like feel shame from that. So I think that it was very much just where I also grew up and the expectations and the time. and Yeah, in the 80s, this was... Yeah, late 80s. The expectation. You, know, you, you rejected the word manipulative and I think you're I, right. I think, that was, I think that was the wrong word. You, you learned... It was that a tool. You could get, yeah, it was a tool. You could get what yeah. you wanted if you... As you put it, put out. Yeah. And and also, like, we didn't, like, we weren't, like, in sex ed, like, taught, and our parents, most of our parents certainly didn't talk to us about, like, respecting your body and making it your own, and, I mean... We were told, don't have sex until you're married. Yeah. Sex is for love. Yeah. And love is marriage. And, you know, and you know, also, story, don't get pregnant. Right? And don't, like, well, okay, you're right. You know, so, and that's the other piece. Don't get pregnant. Know, if, don't get an STD. Yeah, yeah. But otherwise, don't have sex until you're married because it's for love, with no further explanation. Yeah, exactly. So it's like we didn't know what. So like, it was like, well, this doesn't feel like anything really, and you definitely have a lot of pressure. I mean, I know I had friends that dated boys since they were freshmen in high school and came their sophomore into their sophomore year, and they were. You know, it was kind of like a, sort of a, um, like, you know, you got your license, you did all these things, yeah, you had this freedom, you did and, and then you're 16, like, well, 17. you know, 16, 17, you, if you haven't had sex, start, then something's weird. You started you know, drinking at parties, you, yeah. you had sex. And then also adding the alcohol in it, you know, it's really easy to get manipulated and talked into things that you weren't ready to do. When you lose your inhibition and you're like, okay, fine, whatever, you know. Yeah, so that's the point right there. Okay, fine, whatever. That's what sex is to girls. And I'm not, I'm not saying all girls. But 
the vast majority. That's what sex is in those teen years and those early 20 years. Okay, whatever, as long as I get something out of this. Whether it's, again, I, I get to hang with the cool kids or I get the ride in the convertible or whatever. Yeah. The bar wasn't even that high. It wasn't even like you were asking for that Cartier yeah, you bracelet. To, uh, right. Well, but you, you, you weren't to, even asking for a new mop bucket. Yeah. But you also had to walk the line. You didn't want to be portrayed as a slut. So you were, you know, definitely right. like more picky about who you were with. So then you didn't have to um, kind of do that. But, you know, and I'm sure that there's a lot of also like people that just didn't feel loved and so that was a way for them to to feel loved because they weren't getting it at home and so thanks for bringing it back around that's exactly that's why this conversation besides being under discussed in general and a huge reason for a lot of the dysfunction sexual dysfunction and otherwise in relationships i mean i think this topic is very important and should be talked about way more than it is but it's also directly related to what we're talking about today when we talk about low self-esteem, insecurity, negative self-talk, it's because we learn to say yes to please people. It's because we learn to say yes to get what we want, which is what we're discussing here. And I shouldn't be saying we. This is largely a a, a gender-specific problem from the research and the cases that we have studied. I'm not saying that this can't ever happen to a man. It certainly 100% can. But it's very, very common in women especially women who end up eventually in alcoholic relationships. They say yes to please. They say yes to get the person to go to sleep. They say yes to get them off their back. They say yes so that they'll leave them alone. They say yes so that they can get something in return. And it's a lesson that is learned that has nothing to... Well, I guess I shouldn't say it has nothing to do with alcohol. It's because, like you said, the exploration with alcohol and the exploration with sex all start at the same time, roughly. Mm-hmm. In the in the teen years, it does have nothing to do with alcoholism. It doesn't have to do with addiction, but it but the relationship between alcohol and sex is ingrained in us early on, and it's no wonder you know you don't build self esteem because you learn to give up your body to get something else that you want. That's that's destroying your self esteem. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there are so many women running around you know, with this negative self-talk, a lot of it, I believe, started, you know, in this stage of their lives. We're in agreement, right? That all makes sense? Yeah, yeah. The other other thing on my list of three topics surrounding self-esteem is this concept of wanting to fix issues with other people and take control. And now we're getting into codependency, which is also rampant among women. It just is. I think, you know what's funny, Sherry? When when I meet people, and again, in our Shout Sobriety group, the group for newly sober people looking for help in early sobriety, when we ask them to tell their story, almost universally, the men in the group start talking about career and pressures from work. And the women in the group start talking about family and pressures from family as leading causes for their alcoholism. And I think that's, I don't know if that's nature or nurture. I don't know if that's just gender genetic, gender specific, or if that's because that's the way we are conditioned in our society that the, the and I, you know, certainly this is changing and needs to change more, 
But this old school concept that the man is the breadwinner and the woman takes care of the family, I don't know if it comes from that or if there's some genetic component. I Honestly, I tend to believe there's some genetic gender component. But so, so the, the fact that the females are driven to think more about family than they are necessarily work also leads to a whole bunch of codependent women whose you know, instinct is, all right, well, it's not an instinct, it's an insecurity, but they're driven to fix the problems that they find in the family. So if they find that their spouse is an alcoholic, rather than reject that and say, you know, I'm, I am worthy, I love myself too much to stay in this relationship and to deal with this, I'm not going to be a part of this dysfunction. They say, you know what, I'm going to stay and fix this. I'm going to see if I can help this person and turn them around and try to exert some kind of control over this person um, and try to get some self-esteem there. That was a long rambling. Yeah. Does that make sense? It does. You know, when you were talking about, though, the men talk about their jobs and their careers and how that adds a lot of stress and the women talk about the family adding a lot of stress. I wonder if it's not so much a genetic but it is just the um, that it is a nurture, but, but we're not teaching men to say what they really mean. And they're using career as the way as they're taking care of their family. And that's the only way they can talk about how much their family means to them and that emotional attachment. Because to say, you know, that I would love to sit at home all day playing with my kids... If you're a man, like there's still that toxic masculinity and we're not, we haven't taught a lot of these, you know, men now, these young men now are being taught to talk about their feelings. But I wonder if it's just their code word for saying this is, this is how I feel about my family. So taking care of my family, because for you, like if you had, if you were working and you were working hard, which you did, that was a way to take care of us. But you also we're able to put into words how much you wanted to be with the kids. I don't necessarily know if you'd feel comfortable going out into talking to people that you didn't know very well about that. So, like, how much you worked or how much you volunteered as a soccer coach showed how much you cared about the family. So, I'm going to say yes and no to that because, first of all, now I'm very comfortable talking about this kind of stuff. I wouldn't have been back then. But the, the thing that I worried about, I mean, yes, I, I did prioritize finding time to spend with kid, the kids. <coughs> but the thing that I worried about, the thing that kept me up at night and I stressed about was work. It was always work. And even t- to this day, and that, that's why I think there is a genetic, gender-specific component to this. Even to this day, that's the thing I worry about. Or maybe this is just because this is the way I was conditioned as a, as a very young child. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to go to college, you're going to get a degree, and you're going to make as much money as you can. Mm-hmm. And, and that's and, how you're going to raise just, a family. Not just from my parents, but from society as a whole. Yeah. I mean, I remember being in college, and there was this break point between your sophomore and junior year where you either did or did not get into the business school at Indiana University. And it was... It, you know, it was esteemable to get into the business school. And if you didn't, you had to pick a different major. And I remember when I got into the business school, that was a huge relief. Like, okay, you know, I'm going to be able to make lots of money now. I mean, that that was the thought process at the time. And 
so my, that's always been the mindset. Even when we had kids, you know, I love our kids and I love spending time with our kids. You're right. And I do probably prioritize that more than some, but that's not what kept me up at night. What kept me up at night was worrying about money and career and promotions and all the things that we see, you know, men tie their self-esteem to career and women tie their self-esteem to uh, family. And, you know, I'm very uncomfortable talking about this because I, I hate this level of generalization. I'm sure there are women listening to this that are, maybe they've stopped listening because they're like, these guys are sexist and I'm not going to listen to this anymore. And I hate that. I don't want to turn anyone off. I don't want to turn any listeners off. But again, I would classify us as researchers because we we meet all these people and we hear their stories and story after story, when it says the same thing, you know, you start to develop patterns and say, this isn't just a Matt and Sherry issue. This is a societal trend and it's one that we can't ignore. And so not talking about it, I don't think necessarily does any good. But so when, when you are in relationship with me, now you are the adult child of an alcoholic. So when we talk about how codependency entered for you, one of the things that we've talked about is you saw me over drink, not necessarily, I wasn't an alcoholic necessarily when we met, but I would party and party hard and you saw things that were a bit of a turnoff, but they weren't so disgusting that you said, nope, I'm not going to be around this person and wasn't part of it because the behavior that you saw wasn't completely new to you. You had seen over drinking before. And so it didn't shock you or appall you or am I putting words in your mouth? Yeah. Yeah. Um, over drinking, it didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't appalling. Um, and as a teenager and going to parties, I saw lots of over drinking and I grew up in a very rural County. Um, so even like the adults that, were over the age of 21 and, you know, had kids of their own and the kids were in bed and we would be out in their, you know, outside of their house partying. So I saw like adults that were like 28, 29, like just hammered at, at parties. So it didn't surprise me by any means. So, so did you feel, you know, as it progressed in me and it, it went from just appalling occasional over drinking to this is a problem he's drinking every day and you started to really feel that the warning signs were there that this was not going well did you feel that pull to control it to you know the the stereotypical codependency i'm gonna fix this guy i'm gonna i don't know i don't know because i didn't recognize that i know when i when we moved out and away from our college life into early career and I saw that you were drinking every day that seemed shocking to me because I always just thought drinking was you know for the weekends or when you're social with people I didn't look at it like people needed to unwind with it every day um so I don't know if I like necessarily tried to control it but I definitely know I verbalized it so I don't know if I had any any idea how to start controlling it then yeah. You know, like, I don't feel like I said, well, here's ultimatums. I mean, yeah. how would you control that, though, as a 23-year-old, 
you know, living or living together and you have a career and we're making our bills and I'm working and you're working and I'm going to school part time. Like, how do I say other than just like drinking every day is wrong. Well, like but, it doesn't need it. But, but once we had kids, I think that's where the mama bear comes in. And again, this is very, very typical. I think that's when you started to say, hey, this is not okay. And, you know, one specific instance I can think of that was really distressing for you when we had two children and the baby of the two had a really croupy cough. And and Mm -hmm. for those listeners who have never heard the croup in the middle of the night, it's terrifying. It sounds like your baby's dying. They can't get enough air and the cough is really scary. And so you rushed with Nick to the hospital and left me home with Catherine. And I remember that was terrifying for you because I was drunk. I was passed out. And the idea that you were going to leave Catherine in my care and you wouldn't be here, that made you feel sick to your stomach, didn't it? Yeah. Like to the point I almost considered waking her up and bringing her with. Taking her with? Yeah. I mean, I felt like that a lot of times, like just on the days that I would work and our bakery stayed open later at that time and Fridays were particularly scary to come home to mm-hmm. um, because I knew that you had been off duty, I guess, you know, around three and that was three and a half to four hours for you to get a really good buzz on. And Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. um, yeah, I guess like one of the I mean, things I, I, I did like... to control was just, like I said, I wasn't going to buy your mixers anymore. I wasn't going to pick it up at the liquor store. I don't even think I really went at... By the time we had kids to the liquor store, I don't necessarily think you trusted me or you wanted to build a relationship with the employees at the liquor store. Oh, no. I wanted to <coughs> hide from the employees at the liquor store because <laughs> I didn't want anyone to know how much I was buying. This is yeah. the stage where you start going to multiple different liquor stores just yeah. so no one will realize how much you're actually drinking. Yeah. Um, so I guess that was... But I definitely verbalized a lot and was telling well, you, like, this is wrong. This is way too much. You're, this is not... Not normal. And that's when the fights got worse because, you know, your fear for yourself or your fear for this pickle that you'd gotten yourself into wasn't nearly as strong in you as your fear for the kids when I would be responsible for the kids. That's when you started to get angry and, and rightfully so. I'm not saying this is a negative at all. But so... I'll agree. I agree with everything you say. It matches my recollection, what recollection there is. But this this whole concept of trying to control the alcoholic, trying to fix the alcoholic, trying to change in them something that, that a person wasn't able to change in their alcoholic father, for instance, that's very common from the people that we work with and talk to. Did you feel like that I was controlling and trying to change you? And if I, like, how so? Other than I just feel like I was a hot-headed, quick to jump and say anything like... And kind of a nag. Yeah, well, a nag, but definitely I felt very, like, I verbalized. I didn't hold you, pam- I didn't hand you pamphlets or say, you need to go you, to AA Okay, a lot. here's like, something you never did that we hear a lot of. You never, th- I don't think you ever did. Not often anyway. You didn't throw away alcohol when I brought it in the house. I mean, I, a, lo- a lot of the people that we work with... And, you know, I think the the need to change someone goes hand in hand with that person admitting that they have a problem but continuing to drink anyway. So if the spouse has said, yeah, I'm sober now, 
and then they just blatantly lie to the person they're married to and drink anyway yeah. and then the spouse catches it and they start throwing liquor bottles away and pouring liquor down the drain and I think that's when this need to control becomes stronger need to control the uncontrollable and fix what they weren't able to fix again in their in their father or whatever but as much as I did gaslight you and told you you were the problem and you were a bitch and you have a drinking problem, not me, because you don't realize that drinking is a normal thing. As much as I did all that awful and said awful, just repulsive things to you, as much as I did that, I didn't blatantly lie and say, I'm sober, and then drink you know vodka in my car before I walked in the house. But that's very common, mm-hmm. to drink vodka in your car before you come in the house. And so... So this is a piece of the puzzle that I, I don't think necessarily that in our relationship we experienced as much as we see it in other people's relationship, this need to control the uncontrollable. But all of these things, this saying yes to please, this saying yes to get what you want, this trying to fix the uncontrollable situation, what this all comes down to in my head is, and from what others have expressed to us, an inability to love yourself. So you can't love yourself, so you've got to go and control this other thing. It's all related back to this idea of low self-esteem, insecurity, negative self-talk. I can't control that in myself, so I'm going to try to control this other uncontrollable situation. It's kind of like the definition of codependency, as we understand it. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's definitely one of the codependency tendencies. Now, the, 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 I brought up kids earlier and I want to bring it up again. The place where boundaries really come into play and become effective often for women in alcoholic relationships is it's driven by the kid factor. So, Pretty much every mother that we know has this strong, strong, strong mama bear instinct. And they'll take all kinds of abuse themselves. But as soon as it starts to put the kids in danger, then that's where they draw the line. And that's where the boundaries start to take effect effectively. Would you agree with that? I definitely think, yeah. I think so. I remember a time when I was... I don't remember any of the specifics, but I remember I was going to get in the car with the kids and you knew I had been drinking and you were like livid, like you were going to hold on to the car as I tried to back out. If you had to, you were not going to let that happen. Um, and I, like I said, I don't remember the specifics, so you might not be thinking of the exact same situation, but did you feel that really amp up in you when it came to protecting the kids? Did you feel like you would take all this abuse yourself and yeah, you'd be mad about it and you'd feel bad about it and you'd hate me for it, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't do anything about it. But when it came to the, you know, and when I say abuse of the kids, I, I didn't beat the kids, right. but, but putting them in risk. Yeah. Yeah. You would draw a hard line there and create a boundary. Yeah. I think like even it came early as when we had the two younger ones and I was working at our bakery um, a couple nights a week. Or a couple of days a week, like half, you know, the half other half of the shift. I remember talking to you about how I just I couldn't 
I can't do this because I can't come home and have you drunk around the kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, they weren't neglected and abused, or you know, I guess I should say they weren't abused, but I definitely felt that there was a level of neglect. You well, we put you a fed video them, and, and you put a, they watched um, you know, a video, and they ate lunch or ate dinner at a coffee table and in their high chair in the living room. And one time, I remember you coming home and you were pretty much passed out like you were on the couch i'm sure you would have woken up had you need to and you know we had safety measures in place but i was like you know just it was hard it was hard on the last episode of the intoxicated podcast episode 65 karen talked about how she and her husband at one point when their children were young had a role reversal where he had been the the person in the workforce and she had been home with the kids they switched for a year or two I don't remember the exact time frame but she thought oh great he'll get to see what it's like to do the laundry and do the grocery shopping and cook the meals and keep the kid alive and when she started working and he started staying home she would come home at night and none of that was done the laundry wasn't done the meals weren't cooked the grocery shopping wasn't done but at least the kid was alive Mm -hmm. and when she told that story it made me think of those those Fridays that we used to have where I would go home, we would switch midday and I would go home with the kids. And, mm-hmm. um, if I did make dinner, you probably wished I didn't because it was <laughs> something gross and simple. Yes. And, like here's your toast for dinner that I put some your, spaghetti sauce on it. I hope you like it. Radishes. So, but I, you know, basically kept the kids alive. And I remember, I remember feeling guilt as I would drink on those Friday afternoons. I would have, this like internal debate. Okay, I'm just plopping the kids down in front of videos for hours, which is not nurturing. It's not spending time with them. But I work hard and I deserve this time to drink. And the only way I can get it is if I put the kids in front of the video. So I would have. But this you weren't doing with paperwork at the from the business or things like that. Uh, maybe to some degree, but I was also, you know, drinking my face off basically. Uh. As you could see when you would come home and the state I would be in. Yeah, I just, I guess I did think that there was, because I knew that you did some paperwork, you know, because that happened. I mean, I'm, I'm sure. That I happened, you know, for a number of years, like where we swapped. So, um, but I definitely felt, that's when I started to feel that, like, what do I need him for? You know, I'll take the kids and like go if I need to, to protect them. That's interesting. What do I need him for? Yeah. Was there any... So so what was the answer? What do I need him for? Nothing? <laughs> well... I mean, I'm serious. I, I mean, no, I needed you for a lot of things. I just didn't need you to be in that state. And you didn't need I me needed to be... you to be the person that I expected you to be. I expected you to be a good father. I expected you to be a good husband and a good provider. I also expected you not to be drunk. And you needed to stop. And of course, then I would come home. And it would be working. And then, you know, there would be a potential fight as soon as I got in the door. Because I saw the condition you were in. I saw the kids. And I just had no filter. And then... Or if I didn't bring home the right amount of paperwork or if I didn't give you the exact number of something because I couldn't think of it off the top of my head. 
Like you would just like be I would have nitpicking. About yeah, what you would at be like nitpicking me, and I was like, "Well, you obviously weren't concerned about the business because you're plastered." So yeah, you know, and you would always like make sure I locked it all the doors and walk through that with me. And so I remember like saying, "Well, if you're so worried about all this, then you should just be at the bakery full time." And yeah. that happened for a while too. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's shift this conversation back to the low self-esteem and security negative self-talk part of this. It isn't the isn't the answer to I mean the strength the mama bear strength is in you. The mama bear strength is in all of from what we our kind of research has shown all of the women that are in these alcoholic relationships they have the power to draw the line and stand up for themselves when it comes to the protection of the kids isn't the answer to exert that same power and strength to prioritize themselves to love themselves to find a way to to put their own not just safety but happiness and self-worth in front of all others and I say that and even as I say that I know that what I'm saying is I'm asking I'm asking a lot of people to do the near impossible yeah to prioritize I mean that's something Sherry our relationship has improved so much and I mean we've worked so hard on this stuff and the and the relationship and the understanding of these relationship topics, not only for our own benefit and for our own marriage, but because we're trying to understand this stuff because we talk about it with so many others. Even with all the work we've done, it's still a huge struggle for you to prioritize yourself. Would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it definitely is getting easier as the kids get older and they're more independent. So when they're young and dependent on you, it... I mean, that's your job. Right. So your job is to nurture and take care of them and make sure that they're safe and healthy and attended to. So it is very hard. And then if you've got an alcoholic that you're dealing with on the side of all that, you know, you have like no energy left. To take care of yourself. I mean, and I guess I shouldn't say it's for everybody. Because there are some people that just maybe physically go and zone and work out. And that helps them a bit. But finding time to deal with your own feelings. And if you were to speak with a counselor or go to different groups. Like prioritizing your time. Also, if you're worried about leaving your kids in the hands of the alcoholic um, partner. You know, it's just, it's these different things and you are just back burner. I think it's just because life gets too overwhelming. And sometimes you don't want to deal with it. You just want to get through day to day. You get in that survival mode. Yeah, you're just trying to go day to day. Oh, today was a decent day. I mean, towards the end of your drinking career, you didn't drink every day of the week. So... Definitely, I felt some relief on some dates. When you knew it was a day, when I, I knew that it was a day to not drink, right. and there's at least an eighty percent chance I wouldn't drink. Right. So, I definitely think that 
you know, we kind of just shove it down and we're like thankful for those little moments of snippets of sobriety or if the weekend wasn't as bad as it could have been or had been in the past. And you think, okay, well, this is just it. This is just normal life. I think everything you just said is true. I think everything you just said is important and people can really relate to it. But I want to bring us even to the present day. I'm four years sober now. And that doesn't mean that this has been four years of bliss because it's really, really hard to repair the relationship and to repair ourselves. So sobriety is just the starting point. And we're just now getting to a better place. But even with all that preamble, it's, I don't even know, maybe you don't recognize it as much as I do. It is still very hard for you to prioritize yourself. And I know you said when the kids are young, it's different. But even with the kids being older, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been really stressed and overburdened and I've got a million things to do and you'll start trying to help me with my things. I mean, it just happened this week. And then you get up at three in the morning and I say, what are you doing? And you say, I've got so much work to do and I can't sleep because of all the work I've got to do. And I think... You just, you know, spent a ton of time helping me with my stuff today. (coughs) So this concept of prioritizing yourself is something that you still struggle with. And I'm not saying this to make fun of you or to call you out. I think it's a nearly universal problem. Yeah, and, and definitely, like, I know I, you know, in my little personality tests, um... I wonder sometimes if I hadn't become a mother, how maybe I would test differently. But I think... Because you would have been able to I, prioritize yourself? Because I would have been. I mean, maybe I would have. I don't know. But, like, there's, like, a tendency that I have. It's called the obliger tendency. So it is those, those you know, you want to help others because that makes you feel good. And that's part of our other part of our job. Besides, you know, these podcasts, we do a lot of other things where we're putting everybody else first and prioritizing... These communities of people that we don't know, and but so, but, but that's but I'm glad a you, good. I'm glad feeling. you explained why we do that because it is selfish. I'm not saying it's wrong, and I'm not saying I'm going to stop doing it anytime soon. But that's the thing that makes you and I feel good. So we do it so that we feel good. Is it beneficial to these other people? Sure, mm-hmm. but don't don't be mistaken about the reason we do it. It's because it makes us feel good. Yeah. And I wouldn't say it, like, makes me feel less guilty. I just, you know, with the food side of our nonprofit, like, that makes me... It is sometimes, like, when things have to change or there's a lot that we have to order and and unload. And, you know, it is um, a little nerve-wracking at times. Not stressful, but nerve-wracking and interruptions. But you know that you're helping a family have food on the table. So it's it makes me feel good, but it also makes me feel like I'm... That's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to help others. And it doesn't always make me feel good. Sometimes it makes me crabby, but it makes me feel satisfied that I did my part helping a family get food on the table that night. Um, So I think, like, I just wonder sometimes, like, if I... Because I've already, it was like codependent tendencies from my upbringing. And I have these different tendencies that lean towards, um, 
you know, and I think with her, with my Christian faith too, in serving others, and then just the nature of who I am, I wonder maybe if I didn't have kids and I didn't have a husband, I could do these things, but also know when to say enough is enough and I need to take a break. Because so, I've just been so conditioned and trained and I'm so in a ritual. So that's that's the part that's missing. The knowing when to say enough is enough and I need to take care of myself now. Yeah, and I don't even know like sometimes like what I would do. What you would do to take care of yourself? Yeah. Well, you know... I, or relax. I, I feel like... Well, relax. Yes, you... Again, not just trying to drag you through the mud here on this podcast episode, but you are terrible at relaxing. But you do exercise and, you know, you do meet a friend for coffee to talk to someone other than me. And you do a little bit of it, but I can tell that there's guilt associated, especially, you know, I mean, I think you exercise early enough in the morning that I don't think you carry a ton of guilt for that. But like when you meet a friend, I, I think you enjoy it and it boosts your mood and it does all kinds of good things for you. But I still think you carry guilt for doing that. Am I wrong? Well, no, you're not wrong because I think, well, I could be doing this and this and this. Exactly. But the list never ends. The dirt never stops being in our house. Like, I mean, you know. <laughs> the dirt. That's why you need that new mop bucket. Yeah. Because so so dirt. you have two mop buckets now. You know, there's just always something that can be you done. Move, you know, yeah. I could be organizing but, okay. something for my other job. Just, or I could be reaching out. You to just said a else. mouthful. And it, it's that is not anything that's specific to you. That's specific to, let's see. Everybody, there's always something more that can be done. Yeah. No matter what. And when we when we see people that get in this rut of there's this inability to prioritize themselves, to love themselves, then and and all they're worried about is controlling or fixing or helping everyone around them. They they become less valuable to the people around them. It's just like. You know, I read somewhere, and it's proven to be true in my life, if you work for too many hours, there's just no productivity left in those last hours that you're working. So you'd be better off to quit working, go do something for yourself, start again the next day. You'd actually get more done with less hours of work because you're more productive that's why when save, you're healthy. That's why I save household chores for the end of the day. Because they're not thinking. Yeah, but chores. household chores are not self-care. They're not prioritizing I, yourself. I understand that, but you're just making a point like, well, then you need to stop working because you're not productive. So that's when I, that's what I'm saying is that's when I jump into, okay, here comes the household chores and maintenance. Because, I mean, God love them. We have four kids. No one ever notices when there is, because we have three boys, well, four boys. I'll just say we have four boys in our house. You're including me when you say yes. four. No one notices when there's pee around the inside of the room. No one takes time to wipe it off. I do No sometimes. one notices all the hair Not that's in the sinks or on the floor of the bathrooms. So that's when I, like, step into that. Because, like I was explaining to you the other day, I feel like I have too many balls in the air and I'm wearing too many hats at, right now. And, so. I, and I will bet you that 90-some percent of our listeners feel the exact same way. Yeah. Too many balls in the air, wearing too many hats, trying to get too much done. Mm-hmm. And I just come back, to, I'll make the same argument again. Uh, and and here's, here's where I think it's important. Just like that analogy with work, if you know, they, you reach the point where you're not doing any good working, you'd be better off 
relaxing, taking care of yourself, doing something that you enjoy so that you're recharged and you get more work done the next day. I think the same thing, a little twist on it when it comes to this topic of building your own self-esteem, getting rid of the negative self-talk, being proud of yourself, prioritizing yourself, recognizing your own value. This is not only for your own good, it's to the benefit of everyone around you because when you're confident and you know, you're happy and you know the value that you have in the world and in your family, then you just lift everybody else up with you. So if your goal is to control the people around you, to bring joy to the people around you, to take care of the people around you, the thing that you can do the best is to take care of yourself, to prioritize yourself, to stop demeaning yourself and really have that confidence, have you know, that instinct instead of the insecurity. <clears throat> so that's what, to me, that's what this is all about. We, we started out talking about Robin, Robin and Batman and being your own hero. And I just, I, I think that's, and, and this concept of be your own hero, let me just say it, this isn't original, an original concept. This isn't something that, you know, you and I came up with. When I was planning the topic for this podcast episode, it came directly from a conversation that we had in our Echoes of Recovery group. Our Echoes of Recovery group is for connection, um, for feedback, for learning, for sharing um, amongst, among people who love alcoholics and are in, in an alcoholic relationship or have been in an alcoholic relationship. And one of the it, this just this week, one of the people in the group used this term: "Be your own hero, save yourself," and it resonated with me so much that I, you know, we've just spent an hour talking about it. I think it's hugely important. Um, so, if if this conversation resonates, if you want help prioritizing yourself, getting rid of this negative self-talk, building that self-esteem, and being in community and in connection with others that are in the same boat. We hope you'll check us out at echoesofrecovery.com. And, you know, this this battle between instinct and, and insecurity is also something that we talk a lot about in our book. So while I'm pitching things at the end of the podcast episode here, if you'd like to to learn more but you're not, you know, you're not ready to do it in a group setting and you just want to spend some time reading our thoughts on the topic, we really encourage you to to check out our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. And you can find that at SoberEvolution.org. We are a nonprofit and that one is a .org, SoberEvolution.org. So Sherry, thank, I know this was an emotional one. Thanks for talking to me today about this concept of low self-esteem, negative self-talk, what we can do to to recover from it and you know again i think driving home the most important result of taking care of yourself of of feeling good about yourself comes because of the impact that you have on others when you do that when you've got that confidence how you bring joy to the life of others just like you bring so much joy to my life sherry thanks i love you thank you love you too Alrighty. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast.